As I said, the title of the message is entitled The Unfinished Work of Redemption. When we think of the the use of the word redemption in the scriptures, we often think of the finished work that Christ performed on the cross, the shedding of his blood in order to procure the removal of sin, all the sins of all of his people for all eternity. And from that perspective, we should refer to the work of redemption as completed or finished. And rightly so, that's what the Lord said upon the cross. It is finished. Everything that has been needed to be done in order for sinful men to be saved has been done by by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say very often, when we use the word redemption, that's what we're referring to. The finished work of Christ. One man, one sacrifice, one moment in time never to be repeated. And you see that throughout the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Romans chapter 3 verses 24 through 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a, a removal of wrath. There was, there was a, a work that Christ did that appeased the wrath of God. He made propitiation for us. God set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ. The removal of God's wrath is referred to as the redemption of Christ. And then Hebrews chapter 9, there's a a number of passages in the book of Hebrews, uh, but talking about the high priest in verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats, and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It's actually used in the past tense. What he did upon the cross obtained eternal redemption for us. And so I say that most often when you hear the word redemption being used, that's what we mean. We talk about the finished work of Christ, what he did upon the cross in making an atonement for the sins of his people. Another aspect of redemption that we find in the scripture is that of ownership. And this is mainly found in the Old Testament, although there are a few references in the New Testament or hints of redemption being ownership as well. Uh, When something was redeemed in the Old Testament, very often a purchase was made, purchase price was agreed upon, Once the purchase or the the redemption took place, the object that was redeemed became the possession of the Redeemer. It belonged to them. There's a a lengthy passage in in Leviticus chapter 25, in verse 25 through 30. I'm not going to read it, but uh, it, it goes through instructions as to how a brother or a relative was to be redeemed. There was a purchase price. It was silver that was offered, and you can read that for for yourselves. Uh, But the word redemption is used, uh, and and it's the Old Testament word for redemption. Uh, Later in in the book of Numbers, uh, we read Moses took the redemption money, the money that was given, uh, that was over above them that were redeemed by the Levites. So there was money that was given in order to redeem the firstborn in Numbers chapter 3, and that money became known as the redemption money. Right? So there's, there was a purchase made. In this case, the firstborn were redeemed from the service that they needed to offer. And in their place, the Levites offered that service. And from that point on, in the Levitical worship, the Levites were the ones that took the place of the firstborn. But they, they were redeemed. And that, that money that was used to buy them out of that service was called the redemption money. And probably the, the greatest example in the Old Testament is that of Ruth and Boaz. The whole entire book of Ruth is a book about redemption. And it's a beautiful picture of Christ, especially when we know from 
the early chapters in the New Testament that Boaz was actually in the line of Christ, line of David, the end of the book of Ruth. The actual lineage from Boaz is given as to how many generations there were between him and David, the king. And in Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, Then Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here, and they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I, off, and I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the, inhabitants, before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. Right? The purchase of Elimelech's possessions is actually referred to as redemption. And you can go on, and he says that he would redeem it, but then uh, there's an aspect of his inheritance that would be marred, and it's a beautiful picture of what Christ does for his people when Boaz then purchases all that was Elimelech's, including Ruth. And she's brought into the, not just into the nation of Israel, but she's brought into the line of Christ, which is a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful story of the gospel going to the Gentiles, even to the point of being included in the line of Christ. So there's the aspect of purchase. So you have Christ's finished work. That's one use of the word redemption. Then you have purchase, and it becomes the ownership of that individual. But then there's a third use of the word redemption, and that is future redemption. And it's connected to the work of Christ, as the second one is as well. But this is connected to the work of Christ, but the word is said to not have happened yet, unlike the first use. When Christ shed his blood upon the cross and made an atonement for his people, one sacrifice for sins forever, and then sat down. The, the use of this word connected to the work of Christ is always future. Something that will yet take place. And the word is redemption. And we don't often think about this. Like I said, most often when we hear the word redemption, we think of what Christ did on the cross. But just as integral a part of his work is this future redemption. And the passage that we read this morning from Romans chapter 8 deals with a couple aspects of this. I'm not going to read it again. We'll get to it uh, under the points that we're going to consider. But you find this use of redemption in other references in the New Testament, talking about future redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, which is the earnest, talking about the Spirit of God, it's the down payment, it's the earnest of our inheritance. The inheritance that we are going to enjoy, the full weight of what God has in store for us is yet future. But one of the indications that that is ours is the down payment that God has given. He's given us something to hold us over, as it were, as a reminder of all the blessings that yet lie in store for the people of God. It's the earnest of our inheritance, the Spirit of God, until the redemption of the purchased possession. You and I are the purchased possession, right? We're redeemed, we're purchased. But yet there's an aspect of that redemption that has not yet happened yet, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Later in that book, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Again, not talking about what Christ did on the cross, a future day. And it's the day of redemption. And I think there's a clear reference to this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. You'll be familiar with the, with the passage. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, right? The wisdom that Christ has made unto us is the work of the Spirit, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, renewing our wills, giving us that desire to embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. We often call that the effectual call uh, when our minds are enlightened. That's, I think, what's being referred to as the wisdom. Then righteousness, being clothed upon with the righteousness of Christ in our salvation, 
That's actually when we come to Christ. Sanctification, the process whereby we are more conformed to the image of Christ, that goes through our whole life as a believer. Sometimes you don't feel very sanctified. Sometimes you take steps back in your sanctification. But we're being hurled forward. Dr. Allison used to give an illustration of the believer's sanctification. Uh, The illustration he gave was as if we're on a plane and we're heading toward a destination. There's times where people get up from their seat in that airplane and they walk to the back, maybe to use the bathroom or get something out of the, the overhead bin. You look at them and it feels like they're moving backward. But all the while, four, five, six hundred, however fast the plane is going, that person's being hurled forward toward the destination. And so sometimes it feels like we're moving backward. But the big picture, the grand picture in our sanctification is we are being made conformed to the image of Christ. We are moving forward in our sanctification. And then the last word you would think would be glorification, right? If that's the end of the process, but that's not the word that's used. Paul says, and redemption. Again, talking about something that will take place after our sanctification, which continues until we, until we die. So he has to be referring to glorification. Well, here he uses the word redemption. So again, it's not just in Romans chapter 8 that you find this use of the word redemption talking about something in the future. Uh, it's a, it's a, 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 a word that's used often. And it should be, as we have seen from these, the use of the word in some very heavy doctrinal passages, right? Ephesians chapter 1, talking about election and the purpose of God in our salvation. It ends with redemption. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, talking about the entire the entire order of salvation, starting with our being called into Christ, ends with redemption. So this is not just something that gets touched on. The, the use of the word is found in very, very rich theological sections of the epistles that are intended to make Christ very clear to us. And so it's, the, it's that aspect of redemption that I want to consider today. The future aspect of redemption, like I said, we don't often think of it. We use other words to describe it, but it's a great theme in the New Testament especially, and I want to spend a few moments considering that today. So the future redemption, what does the future redemption involve? Well, the first thing we see that our future redemption involves a new body, right? The the flesh, the, the body that we now possess. Scripture calls it our vessel, right? It's It's what we walk around with and spend our days upon this earth in. Scripture makes it very clear that future redemption involves a new body. Perhaps one of the greatest references to this, ironically enough, I said it's a a theme that's throughout the New Testament, but one of the the clear references, I think, uh, is what Job mentions in the Old Testament, which is amazing because Christ had not yet even come to accomplish the finished work of redemption. Everything that the, uh, that the Old Testament saints knew about Christ's work upon the cross was yet future. And so there were a lot of things that they didn't understand about what Christ would do. We have the epistles, right? This is why I, I think this is the reference that, that Peter makes in Second Peter when he says, that we have also a more sure word of prophecy, right? They had a word of prophecy, but look at how sure, it's more sure to us because not only did Christ accomplish the work, but then we've got the inspired apostles that not only refer to it, but they break it down in clear language. Go to the epistles and read the epistles sometime, especially the book of Hebrews, then go back into Leviticus, which is talking about the same thing, but just in picture and type form, and tell me we're not more blessed than the Old Testament saints by having Paul's commentary on the work of Christ. Right? So we have this more light. It's not types and shadows anymore. We have the epistles. These, these men were, were moved by God to make it very clear to us. And yet one of the clearest references to the future redemption of the body comes from Job, who many people believe even came before Abraham in, in chronology. We're not entirely sure when Job lived, but because he offered sacrifice for the sins of his children, that would almost imply he came before the Levitical system, which is before Moses. So 
that was what the, the head of the household did. He was the priest. And so you find Job doing that. So this, this isn't just an Old Testament reference. You can maybe even understand if it came at the end of the Old Testament, right? More revelations being given throughout the Old Testament period. Maybe, maybe some of these men would come to grips with this, not just what Christ did on the cross, but the, the future redemption. This goes, this goes back before even Abraham. And you find Job glorying not just in what Christ would do on the cross, but very clearly refers to the redemption of the body at the end of days. We talk about the passage and we refer to the Redeemer, and we often think he's talking about what Christ did on the cross, but you listen to his words, and I think he's actually referring to the future redemption. Job chapter 19, verse 23, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I say often we, we know that, that he's glorying in his Redeemer. And we talk about the work of Christ and Job knew that work of Christ. I would even go further than that to say Job not only knew generalities about the work of Christ, he knew that one day Christ would return. And when he returns, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's going to bring the saints with them. Their bodies are going to be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Read Job 19, 23 through 27, and then read 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and tell me Job is not talking about that event. When he says, I know my Redeemer liveth, he's applying it to his body. After my skin worms destroy this body, Yet in my flesh, right? The skin worms just destroyed his body. And Job says, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and not another. I say that we often sell these men short, I think, in the Old Testament. I think they knew much more about the work of Christ than we give them credit for. But in the Old Testament, which is types and shadows and figures of things to come, you have perhaps the greatest reference to the future redemption that you're going to find in all the Word of God and the hope that God's people have. Here's a man's personal testimony that he knows long after his body begins to rot in the grave, there's coming a day when he shall in his flesh see God. So I say future redemption involves this new body. Our bodies will, rede will be redeemed because they're still fallen and vile. They're fallen and vile. These are biblical terms, not just neat terms that I come up with. You, you may not think of yourself as vile. We'll, 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 we'll consider what the word vile means. It's a, it's a, it sounds, sounds like a pretty rough word. But if you don't view your body and, and who you are in the flesh as vile, you do not view yourself properly. The biblical definition of what we are in the flesh is still vile. Still vile. Now I know that the body's been redeemed and one day it'll be conformed to the image of Christ. But Paul uses this language talking about the body. And he uses very harsh language in talking about the present state that he was in the flesh. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 for our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he's able even to subdue all things to himself. I say the word vile, it sounds harsh, but from the other references in the New Testament where this Greek word is used, I think you can kind of get a feel for what it means. In Luke chapter 1, verse 48, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. This is Mary, right? For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. 
That word for the low estate of his handmaiden, that's the word for vile. Okay? So if you want to say, if you don't view yourself in a low estate or that something is not yet completed, you don't view yourself properly. That's what the word vile means. The lowness of our present condition. Acts chapter 8, verse 33. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. In his humiliation. That's the word for vile. When Paul says that the Lord is going to change our vile body. Another, other words you can use in the English would be, he's going to change this low estate of a body. Or this humiliation that we now possess. Something needs to change. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God in its present state. And so something has to change. And this is one of the things that's referred to in the scripture that will change when Christ returns. It's part of his future work of redemption. Paul also mentions in Romans chapter 7, just remember, just a few verses before this in our text, right? We're in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7, Paul speaks of himself and his battle in the world in such language that a lot of commentators actually think he's not even talking about himself. This can't be Paul talking about himself because of the language that he uses. Paul is talking about himself in Romans chapter 7. Listen to the language that Paul uses talking about his present condition. For I know that in me, this is the apostle, right? This is the apostle Paul. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Okay, He has the desire to be good and to serve the Lord and to seek the Lord and to be a man of prayer and to be godly in this present evil age. He has that will, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He looks at himself and even the very ability to perform that which he knows he should be doing, it's just not there. right? It's just not there. This is the Apostle Paul. For the good that I would, I do not. The good that I desire to do, I don't do. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. In other words, his desire, his will to seek the Lord and to serve the Lord is there. But something is preventing that. It's the sin that dwells in him. I find then a law or a power that when I would do good, when I desire to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. That word law is the word for power. It's another authority. Something is in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin and death, sin, which is in my members. And then he says this, O wretched man that I am. I can't even do the very things that now I know I need to do. If someone's unsaved and they have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you can excuse them in a certain sense for not knowing the will of God. They're ignorant. They're dead in sin. But I know it. And I still can't do it. And Paul sees that. And he's like, oh, wretched man that I am. Do you know how vile a man I am? That I know what God wants me to do, and I still can't do it? That's what he's saying. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That should be our desire when we sin and when we know that we have sinned and we deal with that discouragement and, our, and that depression in our walk with the Lord where we know we're not where we, we should be. We should be saying with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now we're not talking about salvation. He's already saved. He sees something now that is seriously dragging him down from where he wants to be 
in his walk with the Lord, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, right? The vile body, the lowest state of this body. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We're constantly dealing with this war in this body. That's why the final thing that the Lord is going to do is redeem the body. The body has to be redeemed. Christ didn't just die on the cross to save our souls. He died on the cross to save our bodies as well. Job had that expectation. Paul knew that he, even though he felt this struggle, he could thank God that that future redemption was going to take place. Paul knew it. And so our bodies will be redeemed because they're still fallen and vile. Our bodies will be redeemed because the Lord has promised to do so. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if the earthly house of our tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, right? This is the same man that just wrote Romans 7. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with the house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, this flesh, this tent, this temporary dwelling place, right? A tent, a tabernacle is a temporary dwelling. Abraham had no continuing city. He had no continuing permanent building. He lived in tents for he looked for the one that had built the foundations whose builder and maker is gone. That's the word that's used here to describe our bodies. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So the Lord has promised to redeem our bodies. Our bodies will be redeemed because we've already received the down payment of the Spirit. I mentioned this from Ephesians chapter 1, also from our passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the same word, same idea as the earnest or the down payment, the first fruits, same, same idea, the first installment, right? You take out a loan, you give them a down payment. It's a, a guarantee that the rest is coming, although you look at the amount of debt we've got in the United States, I'm not, con- I'm not convinced the American people are going to bring the rest of the debt that they owe. I think they're going to have to default. But praise the Lord, the Lord doesn't default. He doesn't, he makes good. He's given us the down payment And if God has given us the down payment, you can rest assured the rest is coming, right? And so we see that in Romans 8, this this down payment, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So all that tells us future redemption involves a new body. The second thing is future redemption involves a new earth. It involves a new earth. Our passage in verse 19 says, for the earnest expectation of the creature okay the uh, the authorized version is an old version right 1611 so some of these words need to be explained when i say the earnest expectation of the creature i'm not talking about a werewolf or something that's gonna rip you apart when you step outside in a dark alley okay the creature here means creation okay so we can read it that way for the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. What's that saying? Creation itself is waiting for the day when the sons of God are going to be made manifest. For that that day when they'll be made manifest. For the creature or the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. The, The creation did not do anything wrong. And yet it labors under a bondage of corruption because man fell into sin. Man fell into sin and man labors under the bondage of corruption. Creation itself is also under that bondage because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now future redemption involves a new earth you may not often think of that you may think and we're going to get to this in a second you may think that 
the older you get, the, the more you desire to not be in this world. You may actually be tempted to say, I can't wait until I'm out of here and I'm with the Lord in heaven. Right? Well, I got news for you. Where the Lord is now in heaven is only a temporary place. We're not going to spend eternity where the Lord is now in heaven. We're going to get to this in a second, okay? It's only a temporary place. The, the, the new earth plays a role, a very important role in the, the inheritance of God's people. Remember, the, the meat shall inherit the earth. There's so many references to this in the New Testament or in the, in the scriptures. I'll get to that in a minute. So, redemption involves a new earth. I say that for three reasons. First of all, it was always God's intention. Remember this. It was always God's intention to fill the earth with a godly seed. Okay? It was always God's intention. You go back to the book of Genesis. You don't have to turn there now. You can go look at it later. Uh, we've been, I've been thinking a lot about Genesis chapter 1 recently. And uh, we didn't, I didn't get to the end of the chapter to consider this part. But think about what this says. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. One of the first things out of the mouth of the Lord was fill the earth with a godly seed. This is before they, they fell into sin. This is before sin even came into the world. That doesn't come until Genesis, or Genesis chapter 3. One of the first things that the Lord tells Adam and Eve is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth. It was always God's intention, before man even fell into sin, that the earth would be filled with a godly seed. Okay, keep that in mind. So we see it was always God's intention. The, the, the second thing we see under this is that the earth was affected by the fall at the same exact time that we were affected by the fall. Okay? For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who was subjected the same in hope. It was at the same time. I said that, that uh, the creation didn't do anything, in a sense, to deserve this. But it shows the prominence and the place of, of, of glory in the creation of God that man occupied. Man was the greatest of God's creation. It was the crowning moment of the creation. And so, because man fell, everything else that, that was created that was subservient to, to man also fell into this bondage of corruption. Before man fell into sin, the earth was a, a, a suitable place to live, right? It, was, it, it, it catered to life. It wasn't just that it posed a threat. It actually catered to life. It provided everything that man needed for life. Now, we live in a violent world. We live in a world that you can lay down your head at night and at 3 o'clock in the morning, a tornado can come ripping through your house and rip you apart, right? So it's a violent world. We, we have hurricanes in South Carolina. We have violent earthquakes and, 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 and things that where tens of thousands of people die. Right? That is not the world that was created before man fell into sin. What is that? It's the, it's the creation groaning under this burden of sin. It's not the way it was created. It was not the way it's intended to function. It's intended to function to cater to life and to be beneficial to man. Now you find a world where even creation itself, I'm not even talking about other sinful people. Right? We, do, we don't go very far into Genesis before we see other sinful people taking the lives of other people. I'm talking about creation itself is under a bondage of corruption to the point that it not only is not favorable to life, it actually adds to the death. It's a violent world. It groans and travails, waiting for the day when the sons of God will receive their new bodies. Because the world itself is also going to be transformed. Right? You read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. But it's always God's intention to fill the earth with the godly seed. The earth was affected at, by the fall at the same time 
Christ, as the great curse reverser, will deliver the earth when he delivers us. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Right? So the children of God are, are redeemed first in order, and then the world. And 1 Thessalonians, when you combine 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is often referred to as the rapture, with 2 Peter chapter 3, I believe that the event takes place at the same time. I believe that when God's people are, are given their new bodies and they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, there's a reason why every one of the elect is going to be in the air meeting Christ when he comes back. Because I believe at that time that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be created. In a moment, it's going to be transformed. The same way in a moment we receive a body that's not under bondage anymore. Why should we think that it's going to take the Lord some vast amount of time to create a new earth? I mean, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, with the last trump, the dead shall be raised incorruptible like that. So if, if we are raised incorruptible and delivered from the bondage of corruption in the twinkling of an eye, why should we think that it takes the God of all creation who spoke the world into being, why, why does it take a, a process or uh, some length of time for him to transform the world? And he's going to do it by fire. You can read that in 2 Peter chapter 3. He transformed the world before by a flood. A new earth came in as it were after that. It wasn't the same as the old earth. He's going to do it again in a moment. It's going to happen quickly. So Christ is the great curse reverser will deliver the earth when he delivers us. And then the earth will be the final home for all the saints for all eternity. Now this is where I, I, this is my own personal view. I know there's different views of eschatology in the free church. Um, there are certain essentials that we have to hold to. The visibly, visible bodily return of Christ, the, the judgment. Uh, number of, a number of things that you have to hold to. We call them fundamentals. They, they're part of orthodoxy. But then we know that there have been men over, over years that have differed on the timing of that, whether there's a thousand years you know, wedged in there somewhere or whether that's a figurative term. Um, I don't see a thousand years, literal thousand years in there. You can see a thousand years. I told the people in Greenville, that's fine. You can be wrong. We give liberty of conscience. To people, when it comes to eschatology, not everyone sees it the way I do. But uh, my own view is that because it was always God's will for the earth to be filled with a godly seed, Christ is known as the great curse reverser. He undoes the curse. And that's why a lot of times you go through the end of the book of Revelation, you find a lot of language used at the end of the book of Revelation that is garden language. Read the last couple chapters of Revelation sometime and notice how often there's reference to something that was found in the garden before the fall. The tree of life. We'll be able to eat of the tree of life. Um, there's, 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 reference, there's several references talking about Christ making all things new that is Genesis language. And the obvious implication is that Christ has reversed the curse. And he's reversed the curse in a greater way and has provided the basis for a better position for the saints now because we can never fall. We are with Christ in our new bodies for all eternity. And so I say I believe that that takes place on the earth. Now, I mentioned this years ago. I was talking to a buddy of mine. And we were at work, and he's a believer, he loves the Lord. And I was talking about this, I said, look, I've been reading through different things, and, and I, I, think, I think the eternal state's on the earth. I don't think it's in heaven. And he was like, yeah, obviously it is. He says, I wrote a paper about this, right? He's not a preacher or anything. He just did his own study on what he referred to as heaven on earth, right? That the eternal state is going to be on the new earth the same way that the Lord had intended for man to fill the earth before the fall. And so he's like, I'll print the paper out and tomorrow I'll bring it in, right? So he prints this paper out and there's like, there's like 25 references just in the Old Testament, just in the Old Testament that hint or just come right out and say that the earth is our inheritance. 
right? The most obvious, and it's from the New Testament, it's not even one in this paper, is where the Lord said the meek shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? It means we're going to inherit the earth. It's part of our inheritance. That when we receive our new body, what part of the, the inheritance is the earth. And like I said, you can go through uh, passage after passage. Psalm 25, verse 13. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. There's reference after reference. Psalm 37, 22. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth. This isn't just one reference or two references. Over and over and over again, the Lord is making it very clear that God's people, it isn't just that we'll be on the earth. It's actually part of the package, as it were. It's part of redemption. Not only will we receive a glorified body, but we're going to receive an an earth that is our inheritance for all eternity, that, that no more labors under the bondage of corruption. The two are connected. It's never intended for us to think that somehow we're redeemed and we go up to, to be with the Lord in the clouds and dwell there forever. We're made from the dust of the earth. And reference after reference say that when we receive our new body, this is part of the inheritance, the earth itself. And so, like I said, and, and there's another reference that I was just reading not too long ago that isn't even in there. I sent Mark a, a text a couple weeks ago. I said, yeah, I got another one for you, right? When Daniel saw, or Nebuchadnezzar had that image, saw the, the, the vision of the image in Daniel chapter 2, of the, the image that had the four parts, the head of gold and the silver and the bread, and, and so on. Daniel gave the interpretation of that image. And at the end of that, image, that vision that he saw, a stone cut without hands comes and smashes the image, and that stone becomes a mountain, a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Daniel, in his explanation of that vision, to Nebuchadnezzar explains that the stone cut without hands that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth is Christ. And in in that passage, he says, and his kingdom shall never end. His kingdom will never end and it fills the whole earth. Again, another reference to to the integral part that the new earth has in the reign of Christ. It isn't talking about a millennium there. Even if you believe that there's a millennium and Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years, That passage says it will continue forever and it fills the whole earth. So I say there's there's either direct reference to us inheriting the earth or by clear implication connected to the work of Christ that the earth is our final resting place. It'll be the final home for saints for all eternity. And the last thing, I'll make it very quick. Future redemption not only involves a new body, and not only involves a new earth, but it involves unbroken, perfect fellowship. Unbroken, perfect fellowship. Obviously, this is something that is yet future, right? Because our fellowship is often broken, and it's often not perfect, right? We're the saints of God. We're part of the body of Christ. There should be perfect fellowship, among those that are members of the same body. If you have parts of a body that are not in fellowship, I'm talking about like your human body, we often call that like almost like an autoimmune system where the body is fighting against the body, okay? Serious problems. You got serious problems. The body does not work right. And unfortunately, in the Church of Christ, on this side of our future redemption, the body often doesn't work right. It's part, of, it's part of living in these vile bodies, right? But the Lord says in Revelation chapter 5, And I behold, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, every one of them having harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us kings unto God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. There it is again, right? We shall reign on the earth. These are people that are in heaven now saying we're going to reign on the earth. 
It's all part of the future redemption. But what I want you to see here is perfect fellowship. There's perfect, unbroken fellowship. Current fellowship is often broken, but one day will not be. It's one of the things that I think the Lord is referring to when he says in heaven there will be no more sea, right? Sea, of all the things that seas do, they divide, right? Divide nations. There's not going to be any more sea. There's not going to be anything that will come between God's people in our fellowship. I got to jump on a plane to be with you today. And I'm still amazed I can be here in like six hours. It's, it's just, it just boggles my mind. I wake up. I wake up in Greenville and I leave Greenville at seven o'clock our time and I arrive here at 1230 your time. It's amazing. I, I still, I'm still blown away by it. How some of the divisions have been minimized, right? We have the internet. I remember watching, there's an old movie back in the 50s uh, called How Green Was My Valley. You may, may remember it, an old black and white movie. It was a, a story that a guy was telling about his childhood. And there, there came a point in that movie where his two older brothers, because they lost work and they couldn't find any work, they had to leave Wales and they went to the United States. He never saw them again. When they left, the mom couldn't even look at him because it was so devastating to her because she knew she would never see them again, ever in her life. The son, or the, the, the brother, the younger one who's telling the story, he never saw them again. When they left and they traveled across the sea, that was it. No more fellowship. You can move from Wales to the United States now and at the end of the day get on, get on some kind of Facebook chat or whatever and you can talk to them, right? It's not the same as being with them, but in a certain sense, it helps lessen the blow when you can actually see them and talk with them, Okay? But there's still division. There's still broken fellowship. One day there won't be. We'll all be with Christ on the new earth for all eternity. And then current fellowship is not perfect, but one day it will be. Trials that we go through, disagreements. Even Paul and Barnabas had them. It actually uses the term, the contention that was so sharp between them that they had to part ways, right? This is a... a, an apostle who was moved by the Holy Ghost to write inspired scripture. Even he had contentions that were so sharp that he couldn't, they couldn't work together. It's just part of living in a vile world and vile bodies. And there are people, even in my own church, I even said this when I was preaching, I said there's you know, some people here that I would not pick to go have, sit down and have a cup of coffee with We're just not that kind of relationship. It doesn't mean you're not saved. doesn't mean that I don't like you. It's just we don't have much in common. That's part of the overall picture. But they're saved. And they're still on the top, as it were. The top of the list. Because they're redeemed. But there's there's this aspect of fellowship that just, it can't be what it's supposed to be. How can it be what it's supposed to be when my body's vile? When the things that I desire to do, I don't do. When I'm quick to fly off the handle because of something that that person does when there should be grace and, and love being shown. It's just, you can feel it. You can feel it inside. It almost turns your stomach physically that you know it's just not the way it's supposed to be. Right? And, and a lot of the grief that I deal with is me trying to come to grips with the fact that I can't relate to these people the way I'm supposed to because there's, it's just not there, but it's coming. It's coming. There's coming a day where even the most difficult of the saints in my church, we're going to have... Perfect, unbroken fellowship in the same way that those that I'm closest to, we will have. And you can even go so far as to say, I'm going to have such unbroken fellowship with them that I'm going to have the same kind of unbroken fellowship I'm going to have with Christ. Because there won't be any sin in our bodies, in the environment that we live in. We'll be with Christ forever, and we're part of his body. I can't even begin to imagine 
what glorious things the Lord has in store for us. I think sometimes, just speaking for myself, I think I watch YouTube a little too much. And I watch men who are good men in in what they desire to accomplish and to expose corruption and to show that this guy is corrupt and this guy, this whole thing's corrupt. And, you know, if all you do is fill your mind with what people are saying about how corrupt the world is, you just don't, you, you start not thinking properly as a believer. And you find yourself always angry and discouraged with what you face in the world. This is the kind of stuff that we need to be thinking about. That, that tension that I feel toward a brother, to, to another redeemed person, it's not always going to be there. It'll be removed. And we are going to have perfect fellowship one day because my body is going to be redeemed. The very thing I desire to do, I will be able to do because I won't be under the bondage of corruption anymore. So this is what I mean about future redemption. And hopefully this will fill out your understanding of the word redemption and how it's used. It's just as connected to the work of Christ, but it's not finished yet. It's a future aspect of his work. I trust the Lord will take these thoughts and write them on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Lord, we don't deserve the least of Thy mercies, let alone all these glorious things that are in store for us. The only thing we deserve this morning is hell, and we mean that. We see law that is broken. The wages of sin is death. We, We deserve death. We deserve hell. But thankfully... That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we have come to Christ. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Lord, we're thankful for the great hope that we have as thy people of the future redemption. Take thy word, write it upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Lord, take us from this place rejoicing, knowing what the Lord has done for us and the future prospect that we have as thy people. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish our hymn by singing hymn number six. (laughs) Vile body. Uh, 619, a shelter in the time of storm. And we'll stand together as we sing.